I want to talk to you today about being behind enemy lines. Every Christian who's ever become a Christian has been born, if you know your Bible at all, has been born into a battle. And that battle doesn't take place in a safe place. That battle doesn't take place in a cocoon. It takes place behind enemy lines. It takes place in a hostile culture, a culture that isn't always welcoming of Christian faith and Christian values and Christian ethics. It takes place in a hostile place behind enemy lines. If you are living, if you are alive and you live in the world today, you live behind enemy lines if you are a Christian. And that's the reality of it. That's the reality of it. You have to wake up to the fact that we are born into a battle. It's both good news and bad news. Because the bad news is we live behind them in enemy lines, but the good news is that we're going to win. Can I get an amen? amen? We're going to win because we're on the side of the one who conquered all. That's the one who conquered all. That's who we're, whose side we are on today. I want to look today at these scriptures uh, that, uh, that I believe God has put in my heart. I want to look at these scriptures today because I think it's really important that we have an understanding of what it is the battle that we are being drawn into and who it is that is calling us into this battle and what it is that we confront. Before we, but it's not going to be all that heavy, no, let's so chill out a small bit. Oh, it's very serious. It is, but it's not going to be heavy, okay? That okay? Serious, but not heavy. Will you stand with me? We're going to pray just for a second before we look at God's word. If you want to, you can raise your hands to heaven and pray with me. I'll raise one hand. Father in heaven, as we come in this morning to look at your word, we pray that it would speak to us. Can I get an amen? amen. We pray that it would encourage us. Yeah. We pray that it would challenge us. Yeah. We pray that it would build us up. Yeah. And we pray that it would instruct us. Yeah. And bring life in this place, we pray. Yeah. In Jesus' mighty name. Yeah. And God's people say, yeah. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want to begin this morning with a quote. And it's a quote from my favorite Irish writer. And if you don't like it, just get used to it, okay? His name is C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, an Irish man, born in Ireland, one of the best Christian writers has ever lived. And he wrote this about the current situation that we find ourselves in. Let me tell you something. Your children, if they are in school, are going to school behind enemy lines. They're not going into a welcoming culture. They're going into a hostile culture. The place where you work, I'm fairly sure the place you work isn't necessarily a welcoming culture. Sometimes it's a, host a hostile culture. For goodness sake, I work in a church and sometimes it's a hostile culture. Yeah. Amen. Let's close in prayer on that one. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about our situation as Christians. He wrote this. Enemy occupied territory. This is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed... You might say he's landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. You see, whatever the world thinks is the king, the true king has already landed and his name is Jesus. And some people don't recognize him because in some senses he is in disguise. But the day will come when he will be revealed to everyone. When the whole world will see him from the, we, from the east to the west as lightning lights up the sky and the east is visible in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. When he comes on his second coming, everyone will see it and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's when the, revel, the verse in Revelation that says, Now this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Then that scripture will be fulfilled. Can I get an amen? amen. But no, 
We're behind enemy lines. And I want to look this morning at the whole way that we are identified as Christians and the way that we identify that we are behind enemy lines. We are behind enemy lines socially, spiritually, culturally, and politically. All of these things, as time goes on, are going to become more and more opposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. They'll profit you for a while, but then they'll not going to profit you for very long. I want to look today at a passage of scripture that many of you are familiar with. And it's, it's a, I'm going to just stick up a quick map to give you an idea where this takes place. Because this is literally, the story we're going to look at actually takes place literally behind enemy lines. Politically, socially, spiritually, and everywhere. Um, and here's what we're going to be looking at. You see this big red arrow up here? If you can't see that, you need to go to Specsavers, okay? Okay? So there's a big red arrow up here if you're looking in on, on, on YouTube here. There's this big red arrow here. And it's pointing to this place here, a place called Benaeus. That's where it's pronounced now today, Benaeus. It's also called Caesarea Philippi. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you'll be familiar with what happened here at Caesarea Philippi. If you're familiar with the Gospels, because what happened here is recorded in Luke's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, and Matthew's Gospel. The events that we're going to look at. It took place here. And the thing, the reason I want to point this out is because here it is. It's right up, right up in the northeast corner. Right just beyond the border of Israel. That's where it is. Right up here. So it's actually out behind enemy lines. It's not in the sacred, precious land. It's actually out beyond them, near the mouth of the Jordan. And actually, as it happens, here's the Sea of Galilee down here. So Jesus has been working here in this area, in the area of Galilee. He's been healing, and he's been freeing, and he's been liberating, delivering this, uh, healing the sick, delivering uh, the demon-possessed, even raising the dead. And now he's gone to this place, Benias, or he's gone to Caesarea Philippi, and he will then make his way to Jerusalem shortly. So that's the context for what we are. Where is he? He's in a pagan place. Now, it's a pagan place because the name Caesarea Philippi was previously known as Panaeus. And Panaeus was the place where the god, the Greek god Pan, was worshipped. He was worshipped with sacrifice, animal sacrifice mainly. He was also worshipped with fertility rites. All the pagan rites that had passed down. You see, the devil never makes up anything new. All the worship rites were the same as the worship for the Baals and the gods of the Hittites. And now there was the worship of the Greek gods and they would be the worship of the Roman gods. All the same basic rules. Animal sacrifice, um, weird animal sacrifice combined with sexual immorality. That's basically how they... How they practiced their worship and that's how they worshiped that this grotto was known as the grotto of pan and that also is the place where this city was established because this piece of land was given by caesar to herod he was given this land and so herod's son philip the tetrarch decided to build a city there and he named the city caesarea after caesar philippi after himself because he was a very humble guy he named it after himself is caesarea philippi and this is the place remember these are the two enemies really ultimately political enemies of Jesus. Because when Jesus claims, Jesus claims to be the Messiah, he is affronting the current political powers. Are you with me? So here he is, politically, socially, spiritually, culturally, religiously, he's behind, he's behind enemy lines when he has this conversation. Now many of you are familiar with this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples and I want to draw some truths out of it. As we look at it today, we're looking at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, just a few verses from 15 to 23. Here's what it says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now when he refers to the Son of Man, he's referring to himself. 
It's a title that is used of a, a character in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 3. It's also used many times in Ezekiel. It can mean either a very specific person or it can mean an ordinary guy. But in, in Jesus' case, he's referring to a very specific person. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And you see, even today, people are debating who exactly was this Jesus character. People are still saying it. They're still wondering. There's lots of books published all the time about the historical Jesus. We have found the historical Jesus, some people have said. We've even found some of his relics and some artifacts belong to the historical Jesus. And people, in their efforts to find the historical Jesus, ignore the four gospel accounts, which are the most historically accurate about the story of Jesus, to go finding some other proof of who Jesus was. And then they say, who was he? What was he like? When people say Jesus was a great teacher. Has anybody ever heard of somebody referring to Jesus as being a great teacher? Mahatma Gandhi said that Jesus was a great teacher. He didn't think he was the Messiah. He didn't think he was the Christ. But he thought that he was a great teacher. We have people saying there was a great moral exemplar. He said a great moral example. That he was a great rabbi. He was a good guy. Most people will say that. Some people have suggested that Jesus was, and it doesn't matter, I won't actually go into too many details of all other people, but let's just say some of the things that are said even today about Jesus are not exactly positive. And some people say he didn't exist at all. But they're wrong. He existed then, and he existed now. I love what Malcolm, Mag Malcolm Muggeridge, the Christian, or the Christian journalist uh, from, from the UK, he died in the 1980s. He said this, he said, Jesus either never was, or he still is. He either never was or he still is. And so he says to them, who do people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples, as you all know, were all from Ireland. And the reason we know that was because of the answer that they gave him. You see, they couldn't, so he, here's the answer they gave him, right? So they said, some replied, so they, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. You see, what they didn't answer him when he said, who do people say the Son of Man is, is they didn't say a demonic or they didn't say demon-possessed. They didn't say a blasphemer. They didn't say a glutton and a drunkard. They didn't say a lawyer. They didn't say a lunatic. You see, because they were Irish, and an Irish person would never say something negative like that. So we know that all the disciples are from Cork and from Kerry, where they only say nice things to you. Who do people say they are? They say, you're lovely, you know, Jesus. That's what they say. They say you're lovely. And so the people, they lay out these people, they say, some people say that you're like John the Baptist. Herod believed that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. The Gospels record. Herod believed, oh, I've killed John the Baptist and now he's raised back from the dead and he's going to come and get me. Others say that you're Elijah. That Elijah was to come again. And yes, Elijah was to come again. Elijah was to come again. He came in the form of John the Baptist. And still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. Now the curious thing about all of the people that these guys selected, about who they said Jesus was, were all people who were dead, but who had come back to life in their minds. Are you with me? Like they were dead, but they were, re re they were resurrected or they were resuscitated. So some say John the Baptist, who was dead, Elijah, who was dead, Jeremiah, who was dead, that you're one of these dead guys who's come back to life. Little did they know when they said this, that they were presaging Jesus' actual reality of dying and coming back to life. They didn't even realize it. It was staring them right in the face, even in the name that they chose. But Jesus wasn't a great prophet. He wasn't a great prophet. He was something more than that. And then Jesus asked a question that he asked then. He's asking us today. He's asked for thousands of years. And he asks of every one of us individually. This is what he says. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am in your heart of hearts? 
Who do you say I am when you face trials and you face troubles and you face difficulties and you've got problems? Who do you say I am? And when my name is being taken down and slandered, who do you say I am? And when you hear some report on, on the TV saying they've discovered some other dopey relic of some other mysterious historical Jesus, who do you say that I am? You see, it's an important question that we have to ask ourselves. Who do we say Jesus is? And of course, um, Peter is the first to answer. Peter dives in. He's always the spokesman. He's always the first guy to speak up. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's who Peter said he was. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Wow, fair play to Peter. What a call. That's a serious call to make by Peter. That's a very serious statement for Peter to make. It wasn't flippant. The other thing to remember is that Jesus hadn't told Peter. Peter, by the way, like when I asked this question, and I said, who do people say that? I'm you're supposed to say Messiah. Okay, got that? Yeah, 100% Lord, no problem. He didn't coach them. He never coached them. He rarely referred it to himself as the Messiah. But if anybody addressed him as Messiah, he accepted it. So Peter has this great revelation. You are the Messiah. The son of the living God, which is brilliant. And he goes on to say this. He says, Pete, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. I love, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him and you are Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. But by my father in heaven, he says, and he goes on to say, and I tell you, Peter, you are a rock and on this rock I will build my church. He says, see, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, libraries have been filled about this verse. Who was Jesus referring to? Was he saying that, you know, Peter was the first pope? He wasn't saying that Peter was the first pope, okay? Just want to make that clear. He wasn't saying that Peter was the first pope. But he was indicating that it would be people like Peter that would be used in the building of his church. And people like, um, like you. And people like, uh, like me. That's the people that the church will be built out of. The scripture tells us that the church is God's living building. It's a living temple built of living stones. That's you and I. But that's not the point. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, most of us are familiar with the old uh, translation from the King James Version, which says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But hell is not the original word that's used here. The word for hell is the Greek word gena. Um, this is not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is the word Hades. And Hades, in Greek culture, was the place of the dead. It's equivalent to Sheol, the grave in the Old Testament. And Jesus basically said, I'm going to build my church, and death itself is not going to overcome it. The movement I start, death itself isn't going to stop it. In actual fact, death isn't even going to stop me. I am going to rise up. And I am going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And what's even more is what Jesus is saying here is that not that the church is all going to gather in a circle or hide in a room or get behind the gates and duck down while the gates of Hades beat down the church. Not at all. He means it the exact opposite way. He considers Hades to be a place where the dead are. And he says the gates of that place will not be able to withstand my church. The dead people will not be able to withstand my voice. That's what he's saying. Are you with me? Yes. Am I losing you? I'm losing you, baby. <laughs> Are you with me so far? Yes. And he goes on to say this. 
He says, and I give to you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind in earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose in earth will be loosed yes. in heaven. Yeah. Whatever you bind in earth will be bound, uh, will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose in earth will be loosed in heaven. And this again is a, script, a scripture that books have been written about. But the original understanding of this was that Jesus was giving apostolic authority to the apostles. What do I mean by that? So this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that I drove past Kiri's BMW last week and saw a beautiful 5 Series BMW inside there and said, I bind the salesman in Kiri's and I loose that BMW into my life. Hallelujah. That's all. I bind all. I loose it. That's not what it means. Ah, oh, no, really? Ah, oh, rats. Yet, yeah, that's not what it means. What Jesus is talking about here is apostolic authority. We have to do a bit of teaching as well. Yeah, are you with me? Yeah. 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 He's talking about apostolic authority. And if you want to see how this works out, look at Acts chapter 15, where there's a council in Jerusalem. And the apostles are there in Jerusalem. And when they're in Jerusalem, the question has arisen in the church. Should the new non-Jewish believers obey the Jewish law? And that was a big debate in the early church. Serious debate, really important debate. And so they have this meeting in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15. You can read it when you go home. And at that meeting, it is decided by the, by the, by the, the apostles. In actual fact, they say, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. So they're doing this under God's inspiration, that it is not right for the Gentile believers, the people who aren't Jews, to obey the Jewish law. In actual fact, they should be set free from it. And so what they did was, they bound the new Christians to four rules. These were there. Don't eat blood. Don't eat the meat of strangled animals. Don't eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And stay away from sexual immorality. Those were the four rules that they bound the new church with. Are you with me? Mm. Am I, 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 yeah. Are you with me? Yeah. 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 Thanks for calling, Mike. I just didn't go home. My chicken's burning. <laughs> Those are the four rules that they bound them. But in the process, they loosed the church of the rest of the Jewish law. Are you with me? Yeah. So they bound them to these rules and loosed them from these. Now, the good news for us men here is that one of the rules that they dumped was circumcision. Can we say amen? amen. I don't think any of us would become Christians if that was still a rule. What do you think? If you want to know what it is, Tom is doing a workshop on circumcision upstairs in the atrium immediately after church. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. And then Jesus, something important. Now, I'm going somewhere on this, okay? I'm going somewhere else that will work in your life. This is important. He then says, so he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. It's a curious time. Jesus does this so many times in the Gospels. In Mark's Gospel, he does it, I think, five times alone. He tells people, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Why? Because it was about the understanding of what a Messiah was. I've read this for years and looked and go, why did he? But it's very clear when you actually think about it, because of what people understood the job of the Messiah to be. What was the meaning of the word Messiah? So the meaning of the word Messiah simply means anointed or the anointed one. That's simply what the word Messiah means. It doesn't mean anything more than that. And of course the question arises, anointed by who and for what? Now they knew he would be anointed by God, but for what? It wasn't very clear. So if you read your Old Testament, you can read your Old Testament today, and you won't come to the conclusion that the Jews came to about their expectations of the Messiah. What they were expecting was a Messiah that was going to get rid of the Romans. That he was going to drive the Romans out of the country. They were going to be able to set free. They were going to be able to govern themselves, serve God, and fulfill their uh, responsibilities as Jews, as believers in God. That's what they 
thought was going to happen. They would govern themselves and the Romans would be gone. And this Messiah would be the king. And that's really important. And, and the reason that is, when you looked at the Bible, you didn't actually get that. That wasn't quite clear at all. It just knew that he was the anointed one. Anointed for what? So let me put it this way. He was anointed for the big task. Whatever the big task of the time, that's what they felt the Messiah was going to do. So in the time of the Babylonian exile, they believed when the Messiah comes, he would set them free from the Babylonians. Though God did set them free, but not in quite the way they, they expected. When the time of the Assyrians before that, they expected the Messiah to come and get rid of the Assyrians and set them free. Are you with me so far? Let me give you an example from modern day culture. Imagine the people of Ukraine were waiting for the Messiah. And if the Messiah was going to come to Ukraine, what would he do? What's the biggest task to be done in Ukraine? It's to defeat the Russians and drive them out of their land. And that's exactly how the Jews saw it. They saw this is the big task that the Messiah is going to do. This is the most important thing for the Messiah to do to get rid of these Romans. But the Messiah, Jesus, had a much bigger plan in mind. He wasn't coming to save the nation. He was coming to save the world. He wasn't coming to save the Jews. He was coming to save everyone who believed in him. Everyone who believed in him. To all who called him, John wrote, and to all those who believed in him, he gave the right to be called children of God. And that was the big task that Jesus came to fulfill. But this wasn't clear yet to the apostles. It wasn't clear yet to the disciples because they had this standard expectation of the big task. Now let me bring it home to you. What's the big task in your life? What's the big thing in your life? Tom prayed a little bit about it there at the end of the worship session. You know, what's the big thing that's in your life? What's the big task? If God was to move right now in your life, what would he be doing? Would you be getting a husband or a wife? Or a home? Or a career? You might even be getting a car. That's not normal getting a car. I'm one of favorite cars. But is that re is, what's the big task that's in your mind? And sometimes, brothers and sisters, we can box God in to our big task. It can become the most important thing. Like, how many people here say, when I pray, normally there's one thing that shows up all the time on my prayer list? How many people here would say that? Me. Two people. Three people. Come on, lads. You're Christians. So about half of us have something that comes up all the time on our prayer list. I know what it is for me, and if you listen to me ever, you know exactly what that is. And then, besides the point, we all have something big in our lives. And it can be different at different stages in our lives. Remember when I was, a, when I, when I was a, a young Christian, the big task was to be saved. Then after that, it was to do something nice, like maybe find a wife. And after that, the big task was to find a house. And then it was to find a decent job, because I didn't have a decent job before I got married. I didn't know why my wife married me. But then to find a decent job, and then to find a house, and then to have children, and so on and so forth. And these were always the big tasks. But maybe, just maybe, God was doing something else. And maybe we box God into our tasks. Jesus said, your heavenly father knows your needs even before you ask. Yes. God is our provider. Can I get an amen? amen? God is our protector. Can I just get an amen? God is our promise keeper. Can I get an amen? Yes, he is. But maybe he's doing something even bigger in your life and in my life. And sometimes it can be hard to get our heads around that. Paul spells it out very clearly. Romans chapter 8. Those whom God foreknew. 
He predestined to be conformed to the image and likeness of his son. In other words, God was going to change the people that he called, the chosen, to make them more like Jesus. That didn't mean they were going to have a beard and sandals and a robe, though. Okay, you should do that. That's not, that's not what it means. But to become in character like Jesus, not in, per- not, not in personality, not in temperament, but in character like Jesus. That was God's big task. That's God's big task in your life. Whatever your task is, whatever that big heavy prayer request on your soul is, whatever that big weight that you carry around us, God has a bigger plan. He's got a bigger purpose. Don't get boxed in. Can I get an amen? amen. Don't get boxed in. And so the disciples said, oh yeah, we totally get it. No, they didn't totally get it. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus began to explain something. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Hallelujah. But as he said it, Jesus began to explain to them that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things. What? You're the Messiah. What? That he must be handed, handed over to the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed? What? What? No way! Killed? Again, you're the Messiah. You don't kill the Messiah. If you're a prophet, you kill the prophets. But you don't kill the Messiah. The Messiah kills everyone else. There's something really wrong here. How can you say you're the Messiah and this is going to happen to you? He's going to be raised to life. And I love it. Simon Peter, again, the spokesman. I love it. This is, I love this scene where Peter pulls Jesus aside. You know, because Peter knows everything and Jesus knows nothing. And so he pulls him aside and he says to him, Peter took him aside and says, Lord, never. Like, this is never going to happen to you. Like, this is never going to happen. Never, Lord. Don't let the lads hear us. Never. Seriously. I mean, you're the Messiah. Now, cop on to yourself, Jesus. You're the Messiah. This is never going to happen to you. Now, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and own it. You're the Messiah. Repeat after me. I'm the Messiah. Come on. Come on. Come on. And Jesus looked at him. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, said to him. He turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. I feel so encouraged and built up when I came to church this morning. Pastor Mike looked at me and said, get behind me, Satan. Hallelujah. (laughs) Just like Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Peter, shut your mouth. You don't know what you're talking about. Shut your trap, Peter. You think you know it all. You don't know anything. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but only the merely human concerns. You're only worried about what people think, Peter. You're only worried about what people want, Peter. But I have something much bigger in mind. I want what God wants. I want God's purposes worked out in my life. I'm not here because I'm afraid of people. I'm not here because people threaten me. I'm not here to keep the people happy, Peter. I'm here to save the people's souls. I haven't come to save their careers. I haven't come to save their bank accounts. I haven't come to save their marriages. I've come to save their souls. So much bigger. Don't be in the small task job, Peter. Don't be so short-sighted, Peter. Who do people say that I am is the question Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks today. And it's a question that's been really important in our culture for almost 2,000 years. But it's been surpassed by another question. Another question which has become the current question of today, and that is this. Who do I say that I am? Because that's our current culture. Who do I say I am? Who do I express myself as? Who is the true me? Who is the authentic 
Mike O'Donovan. Darling, I'm leaving the family. I've decided to be the authentic adulterer and I'm leaving you and running off with another woman. You should be so lucky, Michael, says he. <laughs> Who do I say that I am? No, we define our own identity, which is great, because that means I can repudiate what my parents said, repudiate what my grandparents said, repudiate what my uncles and cousins and even my friends say, and I can define myself on the basis of me. Isn't that a great world? But I can tell you this, if you're going to pursue identifying yourself as yourself, if you are going to be the arbitrator of who you truly inwardly are, good luck with that, you're going to be exhausted. Because you have to prove to everybody else that you are truly, authentically you. Mm. I love this idea of being authentic. Be authentic. Above all, so I'm all in favor of authenticity, 100%. I mean, Jesus challenged the, 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 the Pharisees and called them hypocrites because their religion was false. It was false. It wasn't authentic. Do you know think about authenticity? Is It says, you know, you just need to feel what you feel, express what you feel, and do what your feelings tell you to do. Isn't that, the, I mean, that's the message. Is that the message? Or maybe that's the message only I get. But that's the message. But do you know who the most authentic people in Ireland are? They're the prisoners in prison. They're really authentic. They felt it. They felt that their neighbor was really annoying them. And they acted on those authentic feelings. But your honor, why are you sentencing me to 15 years? I was just being authentic to my feelings. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's going to be a lie. It's going to sell you out. And it's a lie in our culture. And do you know why? Our culture no longer wants to accept God's ways, God's plans, God's purposes, and God's values. Shanae, that's it. Here, let me ask you a question. Who's in control? Who's in control of our current culture? Who's in control of the culture where you work, where you go to school, where you live? Who's in control? Well, this is what John says. John says, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. It's under the control of the evil one. Now, I know you might have come in this morning looking for a nice, gentle Jesus, meek and mild message. But I want to tell you what the Bible says. We want to hear what the Bible says. Am I right? Yes. Amen. We want to hear what the Bible says. This is what John says, 1 John 5, that the world is under the control of the evil one. Here's what Jesus said. He said, and just stick on your seatbelt here for a second, because this is what he says. He says, if the world hates you, Remember, it hated me first. Mm. Hallelujah. You stand in good company there. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Mm. Really, Lord? Because like, I get on very well with my next door neighbor. He doesn't hate me. Well, yeah, I suppose. Well, the world except your next door neighbor. Yeah, and you know, the guy that I work with, I work he doesn't hate me. Okay, so the world hates you, but, but not the guy next door and the guy in work. No, that's not the point. First of all, Jesus said, if the world hates you, right? If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. No, here's an important thing. If you're saying, you know, everybody hates me for being a Christian, be sure they don't hate you for just being a muppet, okay? Just make sure they don't hate you for being a whiny, annoying person. Make sure that that's first. Clear that out of the way first. But they may hate you for being a Christian after And you go, how do you get someone to hate you? It's very easy. Tell them that the way that they're living is not good. 
Jesus said it himself. He said it to his own brothers. He said, this world cannot accept me. He said, this world hates me because I tell them that their deeds are evil. And the minute you begin to disagree with somebody on the way that they live their life, trust me, they're going to hate you fast enough. You needn't worry about that. That'll follow. The minute we stand for God's ethics, the minute we stand for God's values, the minute we stand for God's principles, the minute we stand for the Jesus culture, people are going to dislike you. Can I get an amen? amen? But I love it says, Jesus said, you are no longer part of this world. You're no longer part of it. You will not fit in if you're going to be a Christian. You're never going to fit in. You might get on, but you're not going to fit in. Because they'll talk to the guy next door to you at work who's gone uh, paragliding in Paraguay with his parachute. Oh, he's amazing. And they say, what about you, Michael? What did you do last Sunday? Well, I went to church. Well, thank you for sharing that, Michael. Just in there. They don't want to know. Don't want to know. Because you're pushing something. Because you're one of them bigoted, uh, phobic -y, uh, misogynistic, heteronormative, white, Anglo-Saxon. Just sticking, just sticking all in there. That's what you are. It's an assumption that people make. This is what Jesus said. He said, the world will, if the world hates you, but if you are hated, now some of you are absolutely loved and delighted for you, but if it hates you, remember he, they hated him first. Okay. One last quote from C.S. Lewis before we finish. All right, you ready for that? That's yeah. very quiet. It's very serious this morning, isn't it? <laughs> very serious. Michael's very serious. He's normally great crack. I don't know why he's so serious this morning. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. No neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. No neutral ground. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. That's it. You're either for me or against me. He didn't say, and then there's this bit in the middle where you might be a bit for me and a bit against me. And that's a, no, no neutral ground in the entire universe. But every moment and every split second is being claimed and counterclaimed between God and the enemy. And that it goes for your life too and your living situation too. There's no neutral ground in your life. And how you know that you are on the right side is by who you say Jesus is. Because the minute you say he is the Messiah, the minute you say he is the Savior of the world. The minute you say he is Lord of all, you've now found yourself behind enemy lines politically, spiritually, socially, and culturally. You've found yourself behind enemy lines. The minute you make that declaration, you have said, this world is not in line with God's plans and God's purposes, and I am not going to stand in that situation. You're immediately behind enemy lines the minute you make that declaration. But there's good news. There's good news because God has chosen you for a purpose. Amen. God has chosen you for a purpose. He has brought you together for a purpose. He's brought this assembly here this morning. He's brought these two assemblies, the 10 and the 11 30. He's brought this assembly, this church, Grace Christian Church, for a purpose. And here's the purpose that he has called us together for. This is what it says. This is what Peter writes. He says, you are a chosen people. Can I get an amen? Chosen for a purpose. Chosen to be dropped behind enemy lines. Chosen to stand for Jesus. Chosen to commit those acts of sabotage. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. God's special possession. You belong to God. You belong to God. You're the property of Jesus. Hallelujah. You're the property. There's no neutral ground in your life if you're the property of Jesus. You're the property that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is, 
the purpose for which he called you. He called you to darkness so that you may, you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. He's called you to honor him wherever you are. And he's called you to commit acts of sabotage. And those acts of declaring who God is by giving thanks to God and honoring him where you live and where you work and where you study, by giving by honoring God in your daily life, where you live, where you work, and where you study, where, where, whatever your situation is, by honoring God, declaring his praises. You know what the Psalm says, Psalm 50 says, he who, he who prepares a thank offering honors God and prepares the way for his salvation. You're actually preparing the way by committing those acts of sabotage, by praising and honoring God and speaking up 